Hey, it's Keith. If you're a lover of audio drama like I am, you need to know about the Apollo app. Apollo is designed around audio drama, so finding your next story is easy. You can always listen through Apollo for free, but there's also the Apollo Plus subscription. With it, you get ad-free listening, exclusives, and other bonus content for over 40 shows. And 70% of the revenue on Apollo Plus goes to those creators. Join Apollo Plus through the Apollo Podcasts app or apollopods.com. Hello, and welcome to the first episode of a podcast about audio drama and the creative process. I'm W. Keith Timms, writer and podcaster, creator of The Book of Constellations. In this show, I listen to the first episode of an audio drama, then have a discussion with the creators about the show, their methods, struggles, and successes. Today, we're discussing the first episode of The Patron Saint of Suicides. State of Suicides. Created by Alex Dolan. Created by Alex Dolan and produced by Vince DeJohnny. The Patron Saint of Suicides is a crime thriller set in modern San Francisco. The story follows Haven Otomo, a stand-up comic and trauma survivor, who spends her spare time saving people from hurting themselves. When a rash of suicides hits the city, Detective Victor Blossom reaches out for her help on the investigation and her insight into why people kill themselves. The Patron Saint of Suicides is produced by Audiome Media, which is run by Dijani. Dolan is an author of other crime thrillers. Episode 1, Lucha Libre, introduces us to Otomo as she talks someone down from jumping off the Golden Gate Bridge. We also find Detective Blossom investigating the first of the unusual suicides, which may have a connection to an act of violence Otomo survived in her past. I spoke to Alex and Vince remotely. Why don't each of you introduce yourselves to our audience and tell us what you do on The Patron Saint of Suicides? I'm Alex Dolan. I am the creator of The Patron Saint of Suicides. I write and help with the casting and direction and work with Vince to kind of be the fly in the background for the production, be the person that's happy to see the writing come to life through the actors and the sound design and the production team. Yeah. And I'm Vince. I am a producer on the show. I also do a lot of the sound design, Foley and layout for the vocals, music choices and all that sort of production stuff behind the scenes. But we also have a very talented team that assists me in doing all of those steps and I could not do it without them. So I'm not a, a solo man act here. And this is through Audiome Media, right? Which is a company that you're a part of? Correct. Yeah, I'm the owner of the company and we help creators make some really great audio dramas. We also make some originals internally as well. I'd like for both of you to tell me a little bit about your artistic background. What's your artistic life leading up to this point? I grew up in Boston as the child of two parents who happened to be painters. So they were artists. So I grew up in an artistic family and kind of raised us with this appreciation of the arts and music and writing. My father also worked at a publishing house, Houghton Mifflin. So I kind of grew up with this love of books. So at the age of five, I think I wrote my first book, 
that was a was an Indiana Jones-esque treasure hunt kind of book that was called The Jewel that my father was really kind enough to take into Houghton Mifflin and typeset and, and bound it. Um, nice. Which is way more than that story deserved, but it was really <laughs> sweet. And so I got, I got the bug at a very early age to create things and then became a musician. I was a touring musician for a long time. I was trained as a classical musician, French horn and other brass instruments, and then kind of moved into singer-songwriter, alt-rock stuff. I just have been really excited to explore storytelling in different mediums. I, I was a, a published author at two book deals, and then I've been in love with the podcast audio drama format and wanted to explore that. So that's where I am now. Did you study the arts at college? You know, it's funny. I didn't because I, I was so imbued with it growing up. Like That's all I knew. For academics, I studied something else. Actually, I thought at one point I was going to be an international lawyer. It appealed to me because I like figuring out puzzles. And then I realized it wasn't really my thing. I kind of liked the intellectual payoff, but that was about it. You have a master's in strategic communications. I have to know what that is. I, you know, I went into marketing. I found myself working at Columbia University for an international public health, AIDS, HIV, communicable disease program that was working in about 13 countries in Sub-Saharan Africa. And so while I was there, if you get in to Columbia, it doesn't help you with the admissions process, but if you get in, your tuition is comped. So I thought, why not? Communications is kind of what I did for a living. That's the program that supported and trained me up for my job that I get paid for. Vince, what about you? Tell me about your artistic background. Yeah, so mine is actually pretty opposite to Alex's. Um, I was the guy that went to college for creative writing and was working as a journalist for a while with zero audio or musical talent whatsoever. <laughs> you know, it was around, uh, I want to say 2015, 2016 when I discovered audio drama. And so it was fairly late to the curve. And I was reviewing them in the beginning just as a fan. And then I wanted to sort of try my hand at them just as a, a means of publication on my way to trying to break into Hollywood, essentially. So I put together my first one and it was not great, but it taught me a ton about, you know, audio editing, the entire process of, you know, start to finish from writing for audio to producing, directing, sound design, all that kind of stuff. And so I leaned more into the podcasting audio side of things, founded Audiome, started working with a bunch of really talented people in the space. And now I have my day job working for one of the largest networks that produces podcast as a producer, which is really cool. It's a strange way of going about things. And you also did the show How I Died. Correct. Yep. How did you two meet and start to work together? I was living in California at the time. And around 2014, 2015, I saw this performance at UC Berkeley of a live old time radio drama. It was like a live mm. stage version of the way they would have back in the day. Right. And I just kind of went on a whim, came out of it so excited to see how they put that together in real time on stage. And then at the same time, I had moved to a part of California where for the first time in my life, I had a driving commute. So I started listening to podcasts. I'm a writer. I had a, a couple books that were published and one that was being shopped, but wasn't going anywhere, which was The Patron Saint of Suicides. I thought, well, you know, I really would like to tell the story. And I really like this. And I like the idea that this is engaging people in a new way for our generation. I was just really excited to do it. And I kind of put feelers out there to, to just try to learn anything I could learn about the industry. 
And I went on to, I think it was probably a Facebook group, Vince, that we met on, but basically mm-hmm. I kind of like put feelers out and then that's how we connected. Yeah, I was in the process of taking on clients for Audiome, sort of in a fundraising capacity of figuring out how we were going to keep our employees and continue to make shows. So we were working on external productions at the same time. Originally, Alex was supposed to be just a a client. Sorry, Alex, I don't know if you knew that. (laughs) (laughs) Originally just supposed to be a client, but he came with this great story and a real passion for wanting to make it. And essentially, I was like, here's our quoted price to do all of what you want to do. And it was just, you know, sort of unfeasible for an indie creator that we were looking to get started. And so I was like, you know, tell you what, let's work together on this. Let's, you know, really make it something great and we'll split the funding and you have access to all of my really talented team and we're going to help you make it and all that kind of stuff. So it was like a perfect timing match made in heaven, really. Whether it's writing or music or, or any industry that I find myself in, one of the things that appeals to me about it is just learning everything I can. You know, Vince has been very generous about just educating me and how it's done. And several years later, I feel I'm not producer or sound designer, but I feel like I, I understand the mechanics of how it works. more. Yeah, that's really funny that you sort of went down that path, Alex, because I was going to say a very similar thing is that you sort of approach creating a show like this with like a really open mind, wanting to learn and absorb how the stuff is done. And so, you know, that and your unending optimism, I think, are two things that I really enjoy <laughs> working with you for, because it's just so easy to jump on a call and talk through and workshop part of a story and say, like, I know you wrote this in the script and it's a really great idea, but I don't know if we can pull this off with just audio in the scene. So let's try to reimagine it or how can we play with sound and things like that you know, reading some of these scripts, it's just like, it was written so beautifully when I first read it. And then obviously following that storyline of the first season that I was like, okay, we have to figure out how to tell this story and make it transition into this medium, trying to figure out how we would transition that into maybe a narrator or building things with sound design so that tell part of the story without us having to bog it down with some of the more flowery language that you would find in a novel. So it was a really fun challenge and a, a cool pairing, I think. You can hear it as we transition from season one to season two. There's this gradual shift and like you can tell season one was a book. It's a lot of narration. We cut back a lot, but there's a lot of trying to fill in the void where your eyes can't see. And season two was this intentional stripping away of that to try to not pull you out as much with narration and and just drop you in the scene. I've been patrolling the bridge for about two years now. I've stuck to this routine because it's given me an unexpected pastime for which I was wholly unprepared. I don't know whether I hope to avoid my chance encounters or if I look forward to them. The patrol gives me a complicated mix of feelings, from fear to euphoria. As I pass under the tower, I see the man ahead of me. He's alone, stationary, leaning on the railing and looking down at the water. I make out features as I get closer. Stocky, gray-haired, wearing a dark suit, with his elbows on the railing, He might notice that someone is approaching him, but he ignores me. I've seen the pose. I don't have to see his face to imagine his despair as he looks down at the waves. Tell me about the patron saint of suicides in your own words. I wanted to create a good story, but I wanted to talk about mental health in a way that would be palatable. And so I think it's very palatable for people to talk about it through fiction. 
think a lot of tough issues are more easily digestible in fiction. For me, I, I'm, I'm a fan of thrillers and horror, and I, I also like stories that kind of push people's buttons a little bit. So I wanted to kind of couch this in a thriller story. And one of the things that inspired me about it was there's a, I want to say it's a Chinese monk who was spending his nights walking along a bridge and he would talk people off of jumping off the bridge. Mm, and that was kind of right. his thing. I like, it meant a lot to me. Like it hit home for me. That was one of the things that inspired this. And I lived in San Francisco at the time. So I wanted to localize it. So I wanted to have my character be somebody who walked around and talked people off of jumping off Golden Gate Bridge, which for those who don't know is the number one jumping spot in the world. And so I wanted to be somebody who is reflective of the people that live in San Francisco. And um, so it's a character named Haven Otomo. And I wanted her to have a reason for why she would do that. Her backstory is basically she survived a pretty brutal train shooting that happened on BART, which for those who don't know, BART is kind of the commuter rail for the San Francisco Bay Area. Mm. And she copes with that through trying to do acts of kindness for other people. Part of it is trying to think about who this kind of person would be and who would you be to be able to talk somebody out of hurting themselves. And so I've looked into people that had these massive powers of persuasion and what they did for a living. And one thing that kept coming up was comedians. I'm just curious as to why you wanted to tell about this particular kind of mental health struggle. Yeah, well, I live with it myself. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I, I have depression and I live yeah. with it. And, you know, it's something that a lot of people don't fully understand or that a lot of people feel like, oh, you're just out. <laughs> you know, it's like, like uh, and the funny thing is, like, most of my community are other creatives. So it's other authors, other musicians and artists. And we'll have these sidebar conversations where it's like, I haven't been able to get out of bed for three days and I, I don't know what's wrong with me. I'm like, you're another writer. You, you know, we're all crazy, right? So, <laughs> um, and it, I mean, it's something that's, that's very common and it doesn't really get talked about. And so I wanted to, to be able to have conversations where people can kind of like ease into it. And it's not this frightening boogeyman, but people realize yeah. it's, you know, it's just another thing that people have to deal with. It's debilitating if it's not treated. But it's like any other illness, really. Vince, what do you think about when you think about this show? I think that Alex has such great insight into this and like a great way of discussing it and bringing it up. But he is absolutely terrible at selling the show as something that people should listen to. <laughs> I mean, we don't even know that it's a slow burn murder mystery right now. Like <laughs> The patron saint of suicides, it does follow this character haven that is immensely interesting and very relatable and also very foreign at the same time for a lot of people and i think that's the enigma about the show more surface level it is a like i said a slow burn murder mystery where you're hearing the side of the story from two perspectives one being havens as a trauma survivor as she's roped back into dealing with a series of odd suicides that are popping up around Oakland. The other perspective being from a detective who's looking into this. And so both of those stories sort of collide later on into the series as Haven's roped in, the detective and her, you know, are butting heads and working together to figure out what's going on. And the mystery sort of unravels it from there. I don't think that's to underplay any of the intensity and the emotions and the difficulties that Alex was discussing. I think he hit home when he said that some of the easiest way to talk about this type of thing was through fiction. And I think because it's also entertaining and it's not 
preachy and, and things like that, it is really easy for people to come in. I want to point out that Haven, the protagonist, she's dealing with all these issues, but she's also dealing with surviving. That she's dealing with coming to terms and moving on with her life, Correct. having gone through the trauma that she's gone through. And that seems to be a theme running throughout the show, that this is about some people who do choose to end their life. But it's also about other people who are sort of trying to move past the pain and figure out a way to keep going. And in a way, that can be kind of inspirational. The first episode is called Lucha Libre. Gets that title because the, the opening scene is about an attack that Haven Otomo survives. And the attackers were robbing everyone on the train. It turned violent, but they were also wearing Lucha Libre masks. There's another character that pops up later on in the episode, a detective, Victor Blossom, who is brought in to consult on the death of a young man who had been struck by a train. It's believed to have been a suicide, but there are certain kind of circumstances that make him doubtful. And a Lucha Libre mask was found at the scene. He seems to be cut from the mold of most thriller detectives. He's a cop who's seen some things and is just trying to make sense of them. Haven is unusual. She's got heterochromia. She's a comic. Talk to me about your approach to writing these two protagonists in seem to be fairly contrasting kind of way. I feel like in storytelling, I like the idea of contrast. Contrast defines tension. You know, it's that puzzle that we all want to solve. Anything that's kind of in discord becomes interesting because we don't normally see. Haven is, she's empathetic, a survivor. She's coping in her own way, but also has this drive to help people. But she also kind of has this like biting wit. She's also seen things and she has her own way of processing them. Blossom, kind of a guy that's like, should have retired 10 years ago. And just mm -hmm. like, he's yeah. been an Oakland police detective for a long time. And he's not the grizzled detective that's like drinking himself to sleep every night. But he's a guy that like, he's seen a lot. and. He's not cracking the whip smart jokes about like when you see a body on the slab, like he's just like, oh God, I, I got to do this thing again. But there's this spark to Haven and it contrasts to this damp murkiness of Blossom. She's really clever. The ruse that she uses early in the first episode to talk a guy off the bridge. Very smart. He must feel me closing in on him. He's made no movement. And I'm guessing he's hoping I'll just leave him alone with the bridge and the water. Instead, I rush up to him. Have you seen a small boy? He's understandably shocked. It's two in the morning. He couldn't sleep. His father and I are getting a divorce. Oh, that's not important. He just ran away from me. You didn't see him? No. I have to sell my story with greater intensity. Are you listening to me? I haven't seen him. I need to borrow your phone. It's not that hard to cry on demand. The brisk wind makes my eyes water so I can manufacture tears at will. The man's jaw hangs open and he clutches his heart. For a moment, I've made him feel unsafe. This is good. He was already unsafe on this bridge, contemplating the water. But now he doesn't like the sensation. He wants to protect himself. His survival instincts have kicked in. That immediately makes me interested in her because she is so clever. What's the, what is the, the old writer's advice? Uh, characters need to be two of three things. They need to be likable, competent, or proactive. Oh, likable characters. That's a big no-no. I'm getting into some writing theory over here. But yeah, I think writing likable characters is always that thing that's like, 
people tell you that as advice, right? You want to be able to attach yourself to characters so that you're interested in what's going on with them. But I think the term likable has become that word that you want to sort of avoid because we're in a day and age, especially with some of the greatest shows that have come out recently, both in, you know, television, I guess, movies and audio drama included, that likability is so different for everyone. They're so nice. Everybody's going to like them. Like that's not really the thing anymore. It's to have them be interesting. And I know Shonda Rhimes really hates the term likable. Uh She's always talking about how you shouldn't write likable characters, like drop that word. It's interesting or highly proficient at things or something that attaches people to them. So they want to see them either succeed or fail. Because you can have the same amount of interest if you're following a character who you absolutely hate and you want to see fail. I mean, think about Walter White in Breaking Bad. You might root for him in the beginning, but by the end, like, he's not really a likable person, but people attach themselves to him and are along for that journey. I'll, I'll give another example. Think of any TV sitcom you've ever watched and think of the character that gets the most applause. Right. That's not the likable character. Likable people get along which means there's less conflict and characters with no conflict or low stakes are not interesting. Right? Yeah. It's the characters yeah. that get in, that get involved in messes that make us interested. Yeah. 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 I mean, the Joker isn't likable. He's just really compelling. What did you have to do to change the script from a novel form to an audio drama? What kind of changes did you have to make to suit the medium? Strip down most of the narration. Vince had said this before. Try to strip down as much of the flowery language as I could. And even then, season one, there's there's still some in there, but we chopped a lot out. You know, you're setting the scene from a blank page. You're building the entire world based on language. So you have to describe everything. You need to put somebody in the room. It was an adjustment of realizing there are people that are going to be able to hear the world. So you don't necessarily need to tell everything. One of my big heroes as Nabokov or Murakami, like people that are just linguistic experts that just play Mm. with the language. You can't do that as much in an audio drama. You can, but kind of at your own peril. I loved just reading through the scripts because I got the full experience without being able to hear it, right? Obviously, I'm reading everything as if it were a novel written in script format. And so I'm getting all of the descriptions of things and all of the lines where Haven is describing the room and things that we're using as narration. And then as we get into the actual production of it, we sort of approached it with like a let's lay it out the way it's written and see how much we can remove through sound designing the world. Mm -hmm. And so obviously something that sort of struck me when I started working on all of these podcasts in general was just how much you can trust the audience and get away with using sound design to really tell the story where you don't need to rely on narration. In particular, a part that stuck out that I remember we removed a lot of was Haven saying an action that would happen that we would also describe with sound. So part of the recording that we had done with Haven's voice actress, we had had her record a line that said such and such was going on. And then my phone rang. We can have the sound in there and that tells us the action without having to rely on that narration. And so if we trust the audience enough to know that they're listening to the show, they're in the world with Haven, when she's pulled out of the narration because her phone is ringing, the listener is also going to be pulled out of the narration because her phone is ringing and we're suddenly back in the scene. One of the first scenes is the attack on the train. It's pretty intense. That's got some really intense score. 
you really do a lot of sound design, the sound of the robbers yelling to each other and yelling at the people, the sound of people screaming gunshots when they happen. Some of the boys howled primal battle cries, intoxicated by their audacity. We understood. This was a robbery. Within seconds, the intruders flooded the car like creek water around stones. By the time I became aware of the crime in progress, I was too paralyzed to take action. There were too many people, too many masks, and packed in with other passengers, the crowd reached a critical density where the passengers wouldn't know how to fight or flee. We were wedged into our seats, not going anywhere. The train car had two sets of doors, and masked men blocked these exits. When passengers tried to leave, they were shoved back inside. The number of masked assailants would have been difficult to count at a glance, but anywhere from 20 to 30 young men had stormed the train. Show me your phones and wallets! What is your philosophy of sound design? Part of Audiome's style that we've really stuck and found our place in is this hyper-realistic, you know, you're right next to the main character. Mm. So we always try to put the POV of the audio right next to the main character in the scene that they're in. That first scene with Haven reliving the train experience, it was probably the most detailed sound design we've done in anything so far. I remember Alex and I going through it together and counting the number of gunshots so that we had the exact same number of shell casings hit the metal floor later on. I think it certainly suits the crime thriller genre. Crime thrillers are very realistic, gritty, even if they're exaggerated in certain ways. It, it's, it's in our world, right? It's in the world that we live in. Alex, your other works have been crime thrillers as well. What is it about this genre that attracts you? It's like anything else, like, you know, it's something you liked from an early age that, you know, you kind of gravitated toward. There's the puzzle aspect of it. I think that's one of the things I like about mysteries and thrillers. It's like, there's the intellectual part of it of like, oh, you know, I get to figure out the puzzle. So it's like a little bit of a game. What, what's your favorite thriller movie? Oh, gosh. Silence of the Lamps. So, okay, good example. It's not a whodunit. It's a, how are you going to get the guy? So it's like, there's a little yeah. bit of a puzzle element to it. You know, I think people read stories because it helps them make sense of the world. It's a way to talk about something without talking about it. So you're able to deal with something in Silence of the Lambs that's very taboo, which at the time in 1990 was the idea of the serial killer. It's kind of sense-making of our own reality. Part of it is just, it's an interesting person. It's almost like looking at a tiger through a glass wall, where like you get to see something at a safe distance that you would never be able to in real life. And also there's something, like we talked about contrast before, and I think that's one of the interesting things about, about stories like that is you're able to forge human dynamics that you can't without that kind of fictional conceit. So Silence of the Lambs, good example. You have somebody who is a psychopathic, erudite psychiatrist. So at every level, he's not somebody who would ever be in the same room as somebody who was from a West Virginian junior FBI cadet. Like right. <laughs> you couldn't find someone who is more opposite than that person. But you get to see these contrasts come together and actually have to have a relationship. So, Vince, are you a fan of the crime thriller? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I uh, I write crime thrillers as well. And so that's part of what drew me to this is, you know, the great story that was in The Patron Saint of Suicides was partially why I was like, I need to make this with you, Alex, you know? <laughs> yeah. I was listening to in an interview, I want to say it was Taika Waititi, but he essentially breaks down the importance of art and the importance of 
coming together of a shared experience. And I know that there's a lot of recent studies that essentially show that listening to true crime things or watching true crime documentaries or watching horror movies gives you that cognitive web that builds in your brain when you experience something new. It sort of creates a pseudo response to it. Even though you're not really in any danger sitting in a movie theater or on your couch, it creates that same learned way of dealing with something that is terrifying, but prepared for it by experiencing it. I hope that Haven's character in some ways is a way for people to see themselves in these characters and addressing a fear that is innate to humans that we realistically will probably never have to deal with in our lives. but you're sort of prepared and you're not alone in that anymore. As a company that is trying to turn a profit, are there any considerations that you take into production in terms of commercial viability as opposed to, say, artistic vision? Mm, yeah. I'm working on a couple of different pitch decks or pitch documents for upcoming series on things. And so really trying to take a look at budgets that are going to be put forward for each one or how much audience and market viability there is when you're determining if it's going to be successful right. uh, are the topics things that advertisers will want to advertise on but i think the main part is just making sure that it's something entertaining and something valuable that listeners will enjoy alex do you write books that you think you can sell or do you write the books that you really really want to write i write the books i really really want to write but it's inspired by books, movies, every other kind of artwork that other people also find a lot of pleasure in. I don't intentionally write to capitalize on, on an audience or a trend. I'm influenced by the same loved stories that everyone's influenced by. It's just that I don't want to set up a marketing package for a story. How do you measure success? I feel like if I have an authentic connection, it's successful. What I mean is that it, Make one child smile um, or cry in my case. There's a publicist who works on the show and she's wonderful. She asked the same question. She said, you know, what's the amount of downloads? What's the income you want? What are your goals? I kicked it around for a couple of days and then I realized like, that's, that's not really why I do this. I do this to have a voice. And so my measure of success is, do I have a voice that resonates with people? Do I have an audience that can tap into a story I'm, I'm telling and get into it for whatever reason. Maybe it feel like maybe they're just excited by the mystery of it. If they're dealing with these issues themselves, maybe it helps them feel like they're not alone. Whatever it is, like the engagement with other people, telling stories is a way for me to connect with a larger community. And that's, you know, the, the larger that community of connections is my measure of success. For me, there was just this unbelievable feeling the very first time that our mixing engineer put together the final version of the first episode of the series that I was working on. Yeah. And I just listened to it just to make sure that it was, you know, ready for publish as like a final proofing process. And just hearing it come together, there was just like this feeling that swept over me that I don't know if I can really describe in words, but that even before it went live, even before anybody listened to it, I think I was just happy to have it come to life do you think he jumped the fence i found a section someone shared through with bolt cutters and where are the bolt cutters exactly are you sure the victim was the one who cut through the fence maybe the hole was already there but it's pretty close to the point of impact 
Regardless, I'm guessing that's where he came in. Let's hope someone left some evidence on the fence. I just keep wondering. Why here? The location seems odd. Why not just jump off a platform at a station? Maybe this man thought it would be quick. Painless. Maybe he wanted to do it in a place where a family member wouldn't find him. Maybe he wanted to make it so that no one could identify him at all, and it would be as if he just vanished into thin air. Does that ever work? Not usually. Fans of crime thrillers will find plenty to like in The Patron Saint of Suicides. Otomo is an unusual and interesting protagonist, and her struggles with trauma invite a lot of empathy from the listener. But the mystery at the core draws thrill-seekers back for the next episode. You can listen to The Patron Saint of Suicides on most major podcast platforms or see our show notes for more information. The first episode of is written and produced by W. Keith Timms. All the opinions expressed in this show belong to the people who expressed them and not necessarily to anyone else. The theme song is Mockingbird by David Mumford. If you want more information, want to sign up for our newsletter, or if you're an audio drama creator and would like to be on the show, visit our webpage at thefirstepisodeof.com. If you like down-to-earth sci-fi audio drama, check out my show, The Book of Constellations, wherever you get your podcasts. Keep telling stories. It's the only way we're going to get out of this mess. Until next time. I know you got questions about him. Where did he come from? How did he do all those things they say he did? Was he a terrorist? Was he crazy? Was his skin really blue? Well, I'll tell you what I know. I was there with him, driving through the back roads under the stars. I was witness to wonders and miracles, and to the darkness that's coursing through the veins of our country. He came to fight it in his own strange way, but no one leaves that fight unchanged. Not even Rael. People ought to know the truth. And I was there. The Book of Constellations is a down-to-earth sci-fi road trip. It's audio fiction, and you can find episodes at bookofconstellations.com or wherever you get your podcasts.